Well, as I said, you guys probably don't, me all, don't know me all that well, and so I thought I'd share a little bit about myself so you could get an idea uh, of, of who I am and, and what I'm like and, and all of that. And uh, one of the things you should know about me is that I am a, um, I, I am a traditionalist when it comes to Christmas music. Uh, I'm like hardcore, please don't play any new Christmas music ever type of guy. You guys are like, oh, shocker, the guy in the tweed jacket is a traditionalist. Like, this, sorry, it is what it is. Uh, but I, once the calendar turns past Thanksgiving, I want to hear Christmas music, and, and I want it to be from the 50s, and that's it. That's like the only decade you're allowed to listen to Christmas music from, uh, you know, Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby, and that's what I want to hear. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, there's two of us. It's great. Uh, that's, that's what I want to hear at Christmas time. And I don't want people messing with it. I don't want people putting new stuff on or like remixing Christmas music. Like nobody wants to hear that. I want to sing the songs the way we've always sang the songs, or at least since the 50s. And then I want, that, and I don't want you to mess with them at all. So listening to, uh, to Spotify playlist the other day, and an Ariana Grande song comes on, uh, remixing Christmas something. And I was like, thank you in my Christmas traditions. Uh, and I'm kind of the same way with my Christmas Bible verses, and I know that's super weird to have an opinion on Christmas Bible verses, but again, here, here we are. I'm a weirdo, and it is what it is. Uh, but at Christmas time, I want to go through the same Bible text that we go through every year. I want to listen uh, to the nativity stories from the Gospels, and I want to listen to the Messianic prophecies about Jesus' birth from the Old Testament, and I don't really want to hear anything else. I don't want some new spin on Christmas or anything like that. Uh, and so today we're going to uh, look at a, a kind of a classic Christmas text. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Book of Isaiah chapter 9. This is uh, kind of a classic text. You'll, when, when we get to verse 6, you'll probably recognize uh, what we're reading if you've been around church for a while. And maybe even if you haven't, there's some, some of the uh, verses today are used in some of the Christmas carols that we uh, sing. And so uh, I want to look at that text with you this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. This is what it says. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. And for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this is our passage for today, right? And and like I said, you've probably uh, heard this before. You've probably uh, read this before at a a Christmas service. Uh, And I want us to see three things. So if you're a note taker, uh, these are the three things we're going to look at 
uh, today. And the first is this, is why was this good news? So this is great news, it says, uh, for the people of Israel, the people who this prophecy was given to. And so I want to talk about, number one, why is this good news? And number two, I want to point out something that I think we overlook in this text and in lots of other uh, Christmas texts. Uh, A big factor in the Advent season that we miss. So something we overlook is number two. And number three, why that thing that we overlook matters today. So number one, why is this good news? Number two, what we overlook. And number three, why that matters today. So number one, why is this good news? Why is this kind of weird-sounding passage from Isaiah good news? If you think about this text, uh, just a little uh, setup for you. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied uh, in the, uh, a long time ago. I'll give you the exact dates, like 700 or so B.C., Uh, and he uh, was a prophet of Israel. And so basically what prophets did is they spoke for God to God's people. And so uh, the nation of Israel is God's chosen people set aside for his glory and to represent him in many ways on earth. But the people of Israel had an issue. They kind of kept uh, struggling to keep the faith, so to speak. They kept struggling to walk with God, to do what he asked them to do, to live the kind of lives they had called him or they got to call them to live. And they'd go back and forth, and they would pursue God and get near to him, and then they would turn away and get distracted or, or, or turn away to something else. And then God would call them back, and so they would turn back to God, and then they would kind of drift away again. And then God would call them back, or maybe sometimes God would judge them uh, and send a, a, an invading army or, a, or some kind of a punishment upon them as a nation to remind them, hey, I'm still here. And so they'd come back. And Israel had kind of gone through this cycle over and over and over throughout their history. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll begin to recognize this. This cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. And so here, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying, hey, that this this cycle, we're doing another round. So if you you kind of read backwards for a little context, chapter 8 of Isaiah... Isaiah's prophesying this big invasion that's going to take place. He's prophesying this nation called Assyria. They're going to come in, kind of conquer Israel, beat them up a little bit, uh, and that's going to be God's judgment on them for departing the faith. Okay? But then he says in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, he says, but this time, after that, things are going to be a little different. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought in contempt, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. You guys know where that's at, right? No? Okay. Uh, it's the northern part of Israel. I didn't know where it, where it was either. I had to look it up. Everybody just chill. It's the northern part of Israel, right? And this is the part, it was kind of on the northern border, and a ton of Israel's enemies were on the north. And so what would happen whenever God wanted to judge the nation of Israel through another nation, they would come trampling down through the northern part of Israel, through Zebulun and Naphtali. And they would be the first people to kind of catch the brunt of these invading armies who would pillage the land, burn their stuff up, take their uh, their possessions and take their uh, women and children sometimes and just do awful stuff. And so they've kind of been through the ringer as a region. And then what would happen, they would march down to Jerusalem, which is more in the southern part of Israel. They would uh, attack Jerusalem, maybe win, maybe not. Uh, and then they would retreat back up. And where would they have to go right before they left Israel? Their kind of parting shot was, again, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And they would, they would do the same thing on their way back out, uh, raid, the, raid the cities and, and kill people and all sorts of awful stuff that you can imagine. And so this, uh, Isaiah is prophesying. He says, listen, the, in the former times... You guys went through all this anguish, all this difficulty, all this pain. But in the latter times, 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And Galilee is probably a place you're a little more familiar with, but it's, it's the same thing. This is, these are synonyms. Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee are the same place, just called different things at different times. Galilee is the region where Jesus lived and did his ministry where he was born. It's where Nazareth is, his hometown. It's where the, the sea the, that he walked on and all the fish came out of and all, all, most of the Gospels, most of the stories in the Gospels you read happen in the Galilee region. Isaiah's prophesying, he's saying in the later times, in the latter times, he's made this area glorious. He's made it beautiful. He's made it amazing. Where there was darkness in verse 2, now there's light. Those who who were down and depressed now in verse 3, you've multiplied their joy. And they rejoice for you, as they do on harvest days. And Isaiah is prophesying, he's saying God's going to do something in your region that's usually beat up downtrodden, hurting, and in darkness. That's amazing. And you're going to love it, and it's going to be incredible. And that's the prophecy. And so what exactly is he going to do? Well, verse 6 tells us, Unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the Israelites rightly understood this person, this child that was going to be born to be the Messiah, to be their savior, the person who would come and rescue them from all their oppressors, who would set them free from the bondage that they found themselves in, who would be their king and their hero. And they waited expectantly for him to come. As Ben has told you in in weeks past, Advent is really just a, a season of waiting. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And so as we talk about this Advent season, we're we're really talking about the coming of this son. The birth of this Jesus. And it's great news. They're excited to be free from all of the heartache and struggle that they've been through. And as you know, maybe, hopefully you know the story. Uh, Jesus comes and he's born in a manger. You guys have seen the nativities. We have one at my mom's house where I'm staying while I'm visiting in town that my one-year-old daughter almost broke this morning. Everybody has a nativity scene. They're very fragile and nice. Some people have tacky ones in their yard. If that's you, you should stop doing that. Looks weird. <laughs> We've all seen the nativity scenes, right? Jesus is born in a manger, and, it's, and there's animals there, and wise men, and frankincense, and myrrh, and nobody knows what those are, but we're excited about them, and we're just celebrating Jesus' birth. And Jesus grows up, just like the rest of us, and in a human body, he puts on flesh, God, who has existed into eternity past, who had rules and reigns, the uni- reigns over the universe, he puts on a body, he puts on flesh. You ever think about that, how weird that is, that God purposely puts on a human body. Anybody here love their body? Like, I do. That's why I keep growing mine. I'm a big fan. <laughs> but seriously, think about all that goes into a body. Like, they smell really bad. Like, some of y'all really smell really bad. The bodily functions, we don't really want to think about Jesus doing these things, but he, was a, he put on a body. The pain, anybody's body hurts. When you get older, this thing happens, you just start hurting for no reason. Super weird. Ask your parents about it, but it's weird. You just start hurting. You have limitations. Think about being God and never being limited in any way, shape, or form in your entire existence, which is eternity. You do whatever you want just by speaking a word. And now you've got limitations. You can only jump so high. You can only uh, go so much before you have to rest. It's just a weird concept that God puts on a body. And he lives on this earth just like you and I do. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. 
So he lives the life that we live. He has all the same type of experiences that we have. He experiences pain and heartache and loss. He cries over his friends dying. He's betrayed by people he trusts and loves. He has to work. He has to sleep, eat. He goes to parties. I mean, the whole nine yards. He lives the true human experience, but he does it perfectly. And he does it without ever sinning, without ever making a mistake, without ever falling short, without ever disobeying or rebelling against God like the Israelites did in their history. And after 33 years of this perfect human existence, God in the flesh is killed on the cross on our behalf. And he's tried unjustly, and he's beaten and abused and hung on a cross to die. And he just dangles there and he breathes his last. An innocent, perfect God in the flesh is killed. And the Bible tells us he is killed for us. He's killed for us. He's killed to pay the price for your sins and for mine. All the times that we fall short, all the the failures and the mistakes that we've made, all the times we rebel against God's design for our life, Jesus dies for those. And the Bible tells us even more that we can have forgiveness, we can have uh, those uh, sins totally wiped clean from our account if we will put our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. That we would believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he died on the cross, and then three days later he rose from the dead on our behalf. And this is the good news, right? This is what we're so excited about. This is why we sing Christmas carols. This is why you guys are coming to church on a Sunday morning when you could be somewhere else. You could be doing anything. You could be sleeping in. You could be having brunch. You could be playing video. You could do anything. But you got to be came to church this morning. Why? For most of us, because we know that to be true. Not all, but most of us know that to be true. And it's changed who we are. It's changed how we view the world. It's changed how we view ourselves. It's changed everything, right? That good news. This is what we sing about. This is what we talk about. This is the whole deal. But I can't help but notice that there's kind of a big piece missing from our nativity story, right? Let's go back. Go back to this text. I'm going to read it one more time, and I want you to see if there's maybe any unfinished business in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll start in verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Listen to this. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. And every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's a really poetic way of saying uh, there's not going to be any more wars. You're not going to need any more uh, uh, war boots or war garments. We don't need them anymore because there's no more wars, verse 5 says. For unto us a child's born, a son's given. And the second half of verse 6 says, The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful God, or Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of this to the peace that he, and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no end to the peace with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. When I read that, it looks to me as if Jesus only did half the job, right? It looks like he only did half the job. 
There's, there's still wars all the time. I don't know if you noticed, but war's still a pretty normal thing. We had the war to end all wars. You guys heard of that? What they used to call World War I was the war to end all wars. And 20 years later, they had another war called World War II. A few years after that, partly because of what happened in that war, we had the Korean War. I'm just talking about America. I'm not even talking about the rest of the world. We had the Korean War. Like 10 years later, less than that, we had the war in Vietnam. That went on forever. And then like 20 years later, we had a war in the Middle East. That was pretty short. But then we went back to the Middle East, and we've been in a war there for like 20 years now. There's been no end to war since Jesus came. And I have bad news for you. There's not going to be an end to it anytime soon. Nations are warring like crazy all over the world, have been, will continue to be. It's just a reality. This text also says that, that oppression shall cease. And that's where we get this verse, right? That he'll put an end to the oppressors. He'll break the rod of the oppressors. And uh, we sing the Christmas carol in his name. All, been saying to you guys a couple weeks ago. I'm not doing that here for sure. Uh, all oppressors, all oppression shall cease. Do we live in a world without oppression? I don't think so. Oppression looks pretty commonplace, pretty normal. Do we live in a world where peace is endless and everyone just lives in harmony? No. So what is the deal? That was the nativity not good enough? Here's what I want to propose to you. Is that we, when we think of Advent and Jesus' coming as only his first coming, we miss a huge factor in the Christmas time story. We miss a huge reality. And the reality is this, that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. He came once and it was amazing and, and beautiful and glorious and worth celebrating, but he's not done. The Bible teaches plainly that Jesus is coming back a second time. He's going to return for his people, for his church. And there's a bunch of stuff that's going to go down when he comes back. It's going to be really cool. We know he's coming back because he told the disciples he's going back. In John chapter 14, verse 3, he said, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. Here's what's going to happen then. A couple things we know about the second coming, just kind of quick facts, okay? Number one, nobody knows when it's going to be. Let's just get that out there. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. People like to pretend they know. People like to guess. People like to make charts about it. Literally, nobody knows. And they should just stop guessing. Uh, Jesus said, like, it's like when, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are confusing sometimes. This is not confusing at all. Jesus says, but, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Nobody knows. Okay? So let's, that's, that's number one. Number two, in order for it to be actually true that no one knows when Jesus is coming back, it must also be true, and the Bible declares it to be true, that it could happen at any moment. Jesus could return at any moment. You guys realize that? Most of us don't think about that on a regular basis, which is the reason I'm here today, to make you think about it. But Jesus could come back at any moment. Like right now, he could just show up. It would be wild, but it could happen. Okay? When he does come back, the Bible teaches that everyone, good and bad, wicked, righteous, everybody will be resurrected. We don't talk about that a whole lot either, but it's true. Everyone's going to be resurrected. Acts chapter 24, verse 15 says, 
having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Everyone will be resurrected. And then after that happens, everyone who's resurrected will face judgment. They'll stand before God, and and based on where they stand with Jesus, they will be judged. Their, Their deeds, their works on this earth will be judged, and they will either be rewarded with a life in heaven with God, or they'll be punished for eternity for their wickedness. And the way, as I mentioned earlier, to be in the, part, in the group that spends eternity with God is to just put your faith. We're not asking for you to be Mother Teresa here and start an orphanage. We're asking for you to believe in who Jesus is and what he's done. Now listen, I know it's not popular these days to talk about the second coming. Like, I get it. Uh, some of you guys are maybe younger, but if you've been around for a little while, you know it used to be super trendy to talk about the end times, okay? Uh, so just a blast for the past, and just, uh, again, young folks, just deal with me uh, for a minute. But there used to be these books called Left Behind. Have you guys heard of these books? <laughs> Left Behind? There's this novel series written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, and let me tell you, I read every one of them. I thought they were so cool. It was about uh, the rapture. And you guys, the rapture is a, a, a doctrine. Uh, many people believe that when Jesus comes, uh, he's not going to come two times. He's going to come three times. He's going to come one time, grab everybody, all the Christians, take them out of the world. There's going to be seven years of uh, bad stuff, and then Jesus is going to finally come uh, and make everything right. I'm not here to debate with you about the rapture, whether that's going to happen or not. But this, these books were about the rapture. And what would happen? What would it be like? And, and there's kind of a frenzy that surrounded this whole deal. Uh, people were postulating, well, you know, will our clothes stay or will they go with us? And like, or do we just disappear? People in youth groups used to play tricks on each other and they would all like lay out clothes onto chairs just like you guys are sitting right now. And they would leave the room and whoever showed up late would show up to an empty room full of clothes. I'm like, no, I missed the rapture. It was a big deal. <clears throat> Everybody was worried about missing the rapture and you know, when's Jesus coming back? There's charts that go with these things. And guys, I used to be really into this stuff, way too into this stuff. I'm trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. And it's so dumb because you don't know. And so you should stop trying to figure it out. And so what happened, though, in kind of the church timeline is people got kind of weirded out by talking about Jesus's return. It became a a topic only reserved for weirdos. And like you knew in a church, if someone came up to you and said, Hey, you want to talk about the end times? Like this is a guy you need to stay away from. And so it's kind of become taboo to talk about the second coming. It really has. And I think that's a problem. I think that's an overcorrection. I'm not interested in being a weirdo and having charts on my wall, but I also don't think we fix that problem by never talking about it at all. The New Testament talks about the rapture, or not the rapture, uh, the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus 318 times. Approximately one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament is about Jesus' return. And so to the Bible, this is a serious deal. This is a serious fact. And it's something that should influence us in real ways. So here's my third point is, why does this matter to us? be thinking about the second coming? I'll give you four reasons we should be thinking about Jesus' return. The first is it increases our desire for holiness. It increases our desire for holiness. And that just is a big church way of saying it makes us want to live the way God has called us to live. It makes us want to follow God's rules and statutes and laws. When I was in middle school, Cobb Middle School, any Cobb Cubs in here by chance? Thank you. 
When I was in middle school, I had a teacher, a history teacher, geography teacher, who uh, would leave class all the time randomly in the middle of class. It was really weird, and as an adult now, I'm really bothered by it. But at the time, I thought it was super cool. Uh, In retrospect, retrospect, I'm pretty sure they were smoke breaks. But she would leave class and just leave us alone, and she would sternly warn us, you guys behave, work on your worksheets, and uh, in a raspy voice, she'd walk out. Well, what do middle schoolers do when the teacher leaves the classroom? They go bananas, right? And so we always have, we'd take turns being the lookout. Someone would watch out the, uh, the little, little door, uh, window thing and see when she was coming. And we'd all be stupid. We'd throwing stuff at each other, uh, saying every curse word you could possibly imagine, hypothetically. And we'd just be crazy, silly. And then the lookout would say, hey, she's coming, she's coming. And we'd all get back on our desk and sit quietly and pretend like we've been working on our worksheets all along. Why? Because when the person in authority, the person who's in charge, comes back, you want to be looking like you're doing the right thing. You want to be looking like you're doing what you're supposed to do. In the same way, or a similar way, in a similar way, Jesus is coming back. And we're not just trying to get away with being hooligans until right before he comes back. Instead, as believers, we want to honor the Lord with our lives. We recognize that the truth of the gospel of him on a cross, him rising from the dead, paying the price of our sins is so incredible that we want to live the way he's called us to live, not to earn his love, but because we've already doing what he's called us to do, living how he's called us to live, loving the things that he loves, hating the things that he hates. And so the second return, the second coming of Jesus drives us to live the way he's called us to live. I think the second thing, the way that the second coming of Jesus helps us right now is that it can make us a little less angry. It can make us a little less angry. And let me explain what I mean by that. Some of you guys walk around angry, just mad all the time. And you're mad for good reasons, right? A lot of us are mad for good reasons. We're mad because the world is not the way it should be, right? Can I get an amen for that? The world is not the way it should be. We do see the oppression. We do see the injustice. We do see the crime. We do see poverty. We do see wickedness and evil and deceit. We see all of these things. Then heaven forbid you you keep up with politics. Good grief, right? Uh, No matter which side of the aisle you're on, you're mad at the other side and what they're trying to do and everything they're they're trying to do is wrong and wicked and your guy is 100% right and their person is 100% wrong and we're so mad all the time. And I'm convinced that if we really believed that Jesus was coming back, would judge the world, would sort out righteous from unrighteous, wickedness from goodness, it would cause us to just chill a little bit and say, you know what? God's going to make this right. All the evil I see in the world, it will be dealt with. I'm confident of it. I believe it. And so I don't have to freak out all the time. Yes, work. Fix the injustices. The Bible's very clear that we're called to do those things. Engage in these issues. But not with this desperate attitude where we feel like it all rides on us. And if I don't fix this system, if I don't fix this problem or this issue, it won't get fixed. No. Work for those things, but work knowing that ultimately Jesus is going to take care of these things one day. He's coming back, and he will judge the evil in the world should give us great hope and great confidence. The flip side of that coin, number three, is that Jesus' return should give us great hope for our future. It should give us great hope that the evil and and the problems that we live in, they'll be taken away. We will find joy. The book of Psalms Chapter, 16, or chapter 16, Psalm chapter 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. 
are pleasures forevermore. Think about that. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Do we even have a concept of what it would feel like to experience fullness of joy? Total happiness without that tinge of guilt or without that tinge of worry or that tinge of shame that we kind of live with underneath everything that goes on in our life. Fullness of joy in the presence of God. That's what awaits you and I who have put our faith in Jesus. Is life hard right now? It'll get better. Are you broke right now? You won't be in heaven. Amazing, right? There's your prosperity gospel, okay? (laughs) Are, Are you hurting? Are you depressed? Is life difficult? I can't promise you in this life it's gonna get better. I can't. I don't know what the future holds. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's coming for us all. But in heaven, there's fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have great hope in Christ. And lastly, the reality that Jesus is coming back will stir up in us a gospel urgency. A gospel urgency. What I mean by that is the reality is Jesus is going to come back and he is going to separate his people from not his people, the righteous from the wicked. And the only deciding factor is not how much money you gave to church, not your attendance record, not how many good things you did, not your service, not any of those things. The only thing that's going to matter for that division is whether you put your faith in Jesus or not. Friends, we have a message to get out. And Jesus is coming back at any moment. And he calls us to make sure as many people as possible come with us. Do you have people in your life that you love that don't know Christ? Do you have friends, family? Neighbors, co-workers, classmates that don't know this good news that we're up here worshiping this morning, God calls us to tell them, to let it be known, to speak, and to do it with haste because he's coming, and we don't know when, but he is coming. The Bible tells us in the book of Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, that the reason it seems like he's taking so long to come back is because he wants to take as many people with him as possible. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet, the Bible says, is because he's waiting on you to tell your friends about him. That's the delay. But he's not going to wait forever, the Bible says. And so just like Paul declared to the Corinthians, our job is to be ambassadors for Christ, making our appeal to our friends, family, and relatives for Jesus. Be reconciled to God. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you to consider who is it in your life that God is calling you to share with? As we think about Advent, as we think about this season of waiting, the season of waiting on Jesus' arrival, I want to implore you not to make it about Christmas morning. Advent is not about waiting, waiting, waiting until I can open those presents. It's not why we're lighting candles. It's not why we're singing Christmas carols. Advent is about waiting for Jesus. But if it was just about waiting for Jesus to show up, we wouldn't have Advent anymore because he came once, right? It's kind of silly to talk about waiting for Jesus when he's come. No, the reason for centuries the church has talked about Advent is because we're still waiting for him to come again. And so when you sing those Christmas carols and when you sing about oppression ceasing and the slave being our brother and chains being broken and joy to the world, the Lord has come, keep in mind we're not talking just about 
the nativity in Bethlehem. We're talking about Jesus' return in glory to take us home. My prayer for myself and for you is that would stir up in us a desire to keep that in the forefront of our mind, not just this season, but throughout the year, that we might live the way God's called us to live, that we might trust him to handle the evilness and the evil in the world, that we might trust him to take care of us in the future, and that we would live on mission for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is great news that you are coming again. Forgive us for not thinking about it a whole lot, not talking about it a whole lot, but God, I pray as we think about it this morning that we would be reminded that you have not left us alone, but you are coming back to get us. I pray that that would give us great hope, great confidence, great faith, great joy as we celebrate, Lord. I pray that it would cause us to live on mission for you. Thank you for coming the first time, for paying the price for our sins, for living the life that we were supposed to live, dying the death that we were supposed to die, and being raised after three days, proving that you've got victory over Satan, sin, and death. Lord, that is a promise, a down payment, if you will, that you're going to defeat it once and for all at your return. And so we wait expectantly. We ask, come, Lord Jesus, make things right again. In Christ's name, amen.